Hello, and welcome to The Art of Losing, the podcast that looks at loss in all its literal and metaphorical forms. I'm Catherine Ann Davies, and I make music under the name The Anchoress. I'm also an author and academic, and in the writing of my second album, I found myself exploring various different forms of loss and grief. But I wanted to go much deeper into the topic and talk to others whose life or work had been touched by grief and loss. The Art of Losing is a podcast about what we can learn from loss, both literal and metaphorical. What do we gain from losing? And why does loss so often inspire such great art? Together with a weekly guest, we'll be asking the question, is the art of losing ever something we can truly master? My guest on this episode is Kat Lister, author and journalist who's written for publications including The Sunday Times Magazine, Vice, Vogue and The Pool. Her first book, The Elements, a memoir of grief, loss and transformation, is due to be published by Icon Books in September 2021. I spoke to Kat last year about the loss of her husband, writer and editor Pat Long, in August 2018. We talked about anticipatory grief, in the face of terminal diagnosis and the very physical manifestations that loss has on the body. So welcome to the podcast, Kat. Thank Thank you for coming to speak to me today. So you've written extensively about your experience of being a young widow. Um, tell me about your life with Pat and his death. Oh, my life with Pat. Um, a bit of a technicolour adventure, really. I met him at Enemy when we were both music journalists. Um, he was a thoughtful, kind, wonderful man. Um, we spent ten years together. Uh we married in 2013, but actually a year before that he was diagnosed with um, a mixed bone of brain tumour. And that brain tumour came to define our life together from that point, um, living with an illness that we couldn't quite predict, um, had a huge impact on us. Um, and unfortunately, uh, the tumour was such that it couldn't be controlled in the way that we thought it could and over time it progressed um, and got to the point where um, chemotherapy and radiotherapy uh, didn't work anymore and at that point things sped up quite quickly Mm -hmm. Um, so actually a a six-year illness uh, at the point where the tumour morphed um, it only actually really took about six weeks from the point of that diagnosis to to the time that he passed away, which were actually coming up to the year anniversary, so it was actually in um, August of last year. So I always used to joke that there's no like great anecdote for Pat and I meeting, uh, because we worked together for a really, really long time, and uh, at that point our paths didn't quite cross, so it's a bit of a sort of messy tale of boy meets girl, at enemy cross paths and about a year and a half later met up again at a party um, got on really well went on a few dates and things kind of progressed from there 
Um, but I was kind of drawn in by his... He had a very inquisitive nature, uh, encyclopedic knowledge, uh, just knew so much but wasn't one of those annoying guys at the party who you know likes to tell everybody how much they know mm-hmm. um, and in that respect I found him incredibly intriguing he didn't put himself out there in a way that I had seen previously and um, I, th- I always say actually and I've said this recently to quite a few friends that the one thing that I really do miss about him now is conversation conversation being just these doors to different worlds that now feel shut off in a way um even though you have the memories of those conversations mm. it's all those things that you were yet to learn about that person well they always say you should marry your best friend as well don't they you yes. never run out of things to, to it's talk kind about. of annoying isn't it to say that my husband was my best friend but he he absolutely was my best friend and he was my guide and the person that i trusted above all other people um and respected his opinions so much and actually I I wouldn't be writing now if it wasn't for him I mean I went through a period of feeling very disillusioned with journalism and you know lost my way a bit Mm -hmm. and you know it was his guidance and positivity that encouraged me to start writing again and did that dynamic change between you at all when he became ill and through that kind of journey of anticipatory grief and loss did that, that, that dynamic between you ever shift or did it kind of stay the same? I would say it stayed the same. Pat, one of the glorious things about Pat was how positive and hopeful he was at all times when it looked like things just were so hopeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had this extraordinary ability to focus in on what he thought would get us out. Um, and I think that was the harness that pulled me through very dark difficult years and they were and we talk about you know anticipatory grief which is a term that I've only just come across um, in some of the research that I've been doing around grief and loss mm. but that term actually really uh, I really connected with because I think uh, when we talk about grief we can sometimes think about it as a isolated event a one-off thing that happens and actually it's not it never is we had years and years of an illness that seemed to kind of break into our house it was like an intruder in the house and you learn to live with that but you know it's it's never okay and you never you never feel comfortable with this strange thing that is happening that you can't control Um, and I think this the term anticipatory grief really sums up you know the little things that you grieve along the way you know the what you would perceive as the normality of life is taken away from you um and that can be really really difficult i think in some respects that was harder than the grief that followed his death which might sound a bit odd but no not to me i mean a lot of what you say kind of resonates with my own experience of my my dad dying from a brain tumor and that Mm period of time from the diagnosis through to his death that was already for me like a period of mourning because it was slightly different to your situation right from the beginning we knew that dad's brain tumor was inoperable um, and terminal mm. so you already had that kind of you knew the end point of the narrative mm. um but similarly to what you were saying about pat my dad was so relentlessly 
kind of buoyant and hopeful in the face of that diagnosis. Mm. He, he believed that he could fight it. He believed that there would mm-hmm. be some new form of treatment. And, and I don't know whether perhaps that is... I think about it now, you know, is it a symptom partly of the nature of brain cancer? Does it does it change people's personality? Because in a way, my dad wasn't particularly... I wouldn't say he was a particularly optimistic person, usually in, in his life, but yeah, he, he seemed in the face of this enormous um, diagnosis to become so hopeful about the yes. future. And that's that famous Jane Didion quote, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, mm. and I do think if there's one quote uh, that guides me now, it's that one. Not only in the work that I'm doing now, but looking back and remembering the ways in which Pat dealt with such a complex, difficult, uh, traumatising experience uh, with such uh, grace. He was an incredibly graceful man, uh, very dignified in how he absorbed what was happening to him but he never wore it like a cross on his back you know it was it it was just something that was happening to him and uh, actually his control was to keep things as everyday as he could which is so difficult isn't it when you're Mm. living with with cancer is incredibly hard um, it's, but it's something that I've heard from so many of the other people that I've spoken to for this podcast is that idea of that kind of, um, not the, the dignity because that sounds like a cliche, but just the um, the surprising way in which people who are dying deal with it in a way that you wouldn't expect and that loss mm-hmm. kind of opens up all these different parts of our personalities that we didn't really know were there, both mm-hmm. the person who is experiencing loss, the person themselves who is losing themselves I guess in it all too it's mm-hmm. it's such a um, I don't know for me what, what I'm learning through talking to all, all these people is what an illuminating force loss is not necessarily I, I never want to give it a kind of positive spin to say that that illumination is a positive thing but it is a necessary outcome of, of going through that loss well yes because it's you know loss is all around us and Although I write about, um, my story is, I wouldn't say is unique, lots of people have have lost partners and and people that they are close with, uh, parents, siblings, to horrendous illnesses and diseases. Um, What I hope through my writing is that it reaches out not only to people who have experienced a loss in any way, so not necessarily loss through bereavement, but perhaps through divorce or just getting to a point in your life where something significant has been taken away and you have to rebuild and how do you do that? That's definitely something I've noticed again that's a pattern with everybody I've spoken to is the way in in which your loss can be very specific to you but it will resonate with other people who have lost in different ways and there's a kind of like a shared experience through all of the plurality of losses and all the different ways that we can lose and fail in life. But somehow that knits us all together. Yes. Yeah, and those are universal themes, um, which is, is why I, I think I've been reading so much around the topic because there is so much to it. It's a multifaceted thing. But what is so, so different and I guess so um, perhaps 
un, well, I don't want to use the word unnatural, but distinct about your experience. And I know this is something that you've been reading um, and researching around. Um, when you look at the history of widowhood, the history of women who have lost their husbands, of course this is something that happens to so many people. But going through that experience so young, does it feel like an identity that you can kind of inhabit comfortably? Or is there something jarring about being such a young, quote-unquote, widow? Is that a hat that you, you feel that you can wear? Yes, I'm not quite comfortable with the word widow, quite honestly. I'm not sure if I'll ever fully embrace that <laughs> that title. Um, I think it's quite loaded. I think it's especially loaded for women it's loaded for me as a young woman um, and there's a little bit still I think of uh, push and pull and friction there um, you know even the even the etymology of the word widow I was kind of looking at this last night because I knew that we were going to have a chat today mm. and there's there's quite a few different roots to the words I mean there's a Hebrew word alem which means unable to speak there's the Indo-European root to be empty, Sanskrit. This is great. It's destitute, or, or Latin, which is bereft. And you know, each of those words I look at, and you know, language for me is like the be all and end all. But I look at all of these, and I don't think I can identify with any one of these. Mm-hmm. And I think that's can be really tricky and I think language is really important when we talk about grief and sometimes I say it's almost like we need to create a new language Uh, and I feel like we are making up for lost time because I don't think we've ever been comfortable talking about grief and death Um, and because of that the language hasn't evolved in the way that perhaps it should have done yeah and, and historically as well it would have been something that most people experience much later on in life I, I remember with my mom and she went to a few of these kind of widows groups mm. and felt enormously uncomfortable because she didn't feel like she fitted in there she felt like she was too young mm-hmm. that most that she was not in the same place in her life and mm. it, it is about that when your loss doesn't fit into a box when your loss kind of is not it's not like a cookie cutter or expected this is what happens in life it, no it brings up those own kind of social problems too it's like where do you go for support and help where do you um look for to see your kind of experience mirrored and mimicked and i know for you that a huge consolation has been the compulsion to read mm. and both write through your grief i wondered if we we could talk a bit about that yeah absolutely i uh <laughs> It's strange because when I think back to where I was this time last year in the immediacy after Pat's death, I, in some respects, I don't really recognise myself because I, I kind of just uh, went crazy for books. That's the only way I can describe it is that I just, I had to read as many as possible. Mm-hmm. And that became a, a bit of a compulsion for me in that I, I had to find words. I needed words. I needed to understand. And the only way I could understand is through language. Um, but through reading, I realised that the, the narrative was a much older narrative. Um, most of the texts that I really connected with were written by much older writers which you might not think has an effect upon sort of the way that you 
absorb and interpret what they're saying but you know the experience is different um so i was reading uh, joan didion's year of magical thinking um joyce carol oates has written an extremely visceral uh, blow by blow account and i used the word blow because mm-hmm. that's what these diary entries are they are uh raw um and visceral um an absolute retelling of those early weeks and months of grief mm-hmm. um, and I and I lapped that book up because she didn't edit herself it's all there and it's all true um, I also read um, C.S. Lewis um, A Grief Observed and what all these books have in common is a almost pathological interest in the experience that has consumed them. Um, all of these writers became reporters of their own grief and they are filing from the front lines of their own grief and I found that fascinating and it helped me to understand this um, almost obscene experience of grief in those early days. Um, just the way that it takes over you in such a physical way that I wasn't prepared for. I mean, we talk about grief in terms of tears and crying and sadness, but I don't think we talk about, you know, the shakes, uh, the panic attacks, the hallucinations. Um, These are scary things that perhaps because they're so scary, we don't like to talk about them. Unfortunately, because we don't talk about them so much, it means that people, and many people do experience these symptoms, feel like they're going mad in their grief. Yeah, the sheer physicality of it, I think I found in in all of my experiences to just be completely surprising and unexpected, and mm. but also alienating from other people, because mm. it almost feels like kind of the death itself has kind of taken root, in, that was the way I felt, like taking root in, in your, you, yourself, mm. that maybe you are also dying too, because that's what it feels like. Especially yeah. when your heart literally hurts, the pain in your chest that you, yes. that you get. I know that people talk about um, it's like that broken heart syndrome. You can literally get atrophying of the heart muscle when peri- yes. people experience extreme trauma and extreme pain. Yes, but you know what? As a child, I used to love uh, walking through a Tate Gallery and looking at pre-Raphaelite paintings. I was a very uh, quite irritating romantic child who thought that love meant loss you know yeah. that to love is to hurt and love is pain and in some respects a little bit of that nine-year-old girl still uh, still was there in me when Pat died because I think before he died I thought well maybe I'll just like maybe that'll just be it for me I'll just collapse and that'll be it, you know. I think it's Nick Cave, isn't I'll it, who done. says, look, isn't it the price of love is grief? That's the price that we pay. Yes. And it's far harder to live. It's far harder to find a path through loss. And that's something I'm still trying to get to grips with. I would say it's and almost impossible to live in the, in the immediate aftermath. Certainly for me, I, I felt like there were moments when certainly after my miscarriage where I didn't want to live mm. and I certainly didn't, wasn't capable of feeling alive mm. or feeling life mm. I think 
that that's and again having observed my mother go through her intense grieving for my dad as well I could see that, that in her too that just that actually having no interest in continuing or mm. and or just not having the physical capacity to mm. the need to sort of almost be there with him to to be there in to want to disappear mm. perhaps exactly the the that's true the 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 want to disappear is strong and I still have that now it's it is not as intense as it was um it comes and goes uh, but it but it is still there and when it returns it's very alienating it's a very isolating feeling um, and that narrative as well that it slowly gets better as well which is such a crock of shit isn't it it's like yeah, yeah. Th- as if grief is some like trajectory where things get better slowly over time and, it... and there are theories that have fed into that and part of my research is looking into this you know that there's that the Kubler-Ross theory the five stages of grief um, and the idea that a person very neatly transitions from one stage to the next through uh, anger to acceptance you know is not it's not an accurate representation of the grief process you know the only term that I've really been able to connect with is, is the idea of waves oscillations you know this 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 back and forth almost like you're rocking in the mm-hmm you're rocking in the um, base of a ship and and you're feeling that push and pull. Um, but even now I think I still put pressure on myself, even though I know that grief is subject to these waves. I still sometimes feel like I should be, like you say, like neatly... Yeah, on an upward trajectory yes. somehow. And do you think that's part of the compulsion that you've had to write? And I know you've written a, a lot of great pieces so far um, for different kind of broadsheets and magazines about your experiences. Do you think that that's part of your compulsion to write about your experience of loss and grief because you want a more accurate picture to be out there about what it actually feels like to, to kind of maybe set the record straight on some of these um, misconceptions? Yes, I think I am writing to create a narrative I couldn't find. And despite reading all that I did in those early weeks, I still felt like my voice wasn't fully represented and there were things that I was feeling and experiencing that wasn't represented in text. Uh, And, you know, writing's what I do best. I completely flummox speaking, as you can... I'm not good at speaking out loud I'm not good at expressing myself um, in this way but on the page I am you know it, it there's that split second in time between having a thought and putting it down on paper and there's something uh, in that process uh, that's extremely cathartic for me uh, and I do think there's something quite magical in being able to do it if you can to sometimes I don't even know what's in my head it's only when I put it down on the page that I come face to face with some of the thoughts that are percolating and this is this is something I said to um, another poet that I've interviewed for this series 
and I, my question was, I guess, do you feel like, in a way, when you are a creative person, when you are a writer and you're experiencing loss, that you are, you're at an, not an advantage necessarily, but you, you do at least have that ready-made conduit through which to express yourself or to um, kind of try and understand some of the things that you are dealing with. I, I, I cannot fathom how people go through grief without some kind of form of creative mm. outlet. Mm. I mean, the first part of the first piece that I wrote uh, was uh, for a women's w- website called The Pool, uh, where I was working at the time, and you know that was written very early on. It was written two months, if that, after Pat's death, and when I read that piece back, I am quite shocked at what I managed to do there because it's almost like reading somebody else um, uh, almost like a tunnel vision in that piece at a point where everything is um, everything's kind of swirling around and it was my only way of being able to control my environment and my own head and my own Mm -hmm. thoughts Uh, and a large part of why I've written about grief is uh, yes to put an, uh, put a narrative out there that I feel like needs to be put out there and um, others will connect with. That's probably the the main objective of it. But equally important is to understand what's happening in me, um, because a large part of uh, this grief experience for me has been this physicality this disconnection this um disconnection that I've had in my own body I hadn't ever experienced before but also the realization that for actually many many years living with an illness that we couldn't control and the impact that it had on Mm. other facets of our life how very gradually over many years that disconnect connection had occurred without me realizing. Can we talk a bit about that mm, kind sure. of process? And of, I guess you you think you called it anticipatory grief. Yes. Um, as I said, I think I've experienced that to to a smaller extent with my dad. Um, and you and Pat lived with this diagnosis for seven years. Is that it's like? around six years? And I wonder what the process looks like that when it's protracted over the period of time. All those mini griefs that you go through when somebody is is unwell how that is a different way of losing to a sudden shock you know somebody having a heart attack or having a car crash or it's almost like you're being weathered uh, it, it 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 takes off layers in a very in a way that you're not necessarily always aware of and i think those 6 years I mean, the other thing is that I had this quite uh, defensive approach during the illness, which was uh, wanting to be protective of our, of our experience, not wanting to be appeared as sort of, to, to seem as an other, you know. I wanted mm-hmm. people to see us as us, and that was really, really important. So, um, to still live. Well, yes, and also there was this, you know, don't pity us mm-hmm. thing that I had, um, which was very important to me. 
actually there was part of my reading uh, after Pat died um, one of my best friends sent me a collection of poems by a poet who I'd never heard of before called Jack Gilbert it's called Refusing Heaven and it's about loss love and grief um, some of the poems are about divorce and actually the poem that I really identified with I think is actually about a divorce and it's called Failing and Flying and the first two lines is kind of how I felt during his illness because it starts everyone forgets that Icarus also flew and part of my approach during his condition was that we had something really special and wonderful and as much as this illness affected us negatively we had an extraordinary connection and a friendship that I don't think I will ever find again in my lifetime and so I think I wanted to hang on to that more than I wanted to engage in the negative impact that his condition had not to say that's the right approach it's probably mm. not um and yes. i'm probably paying the price for that now because there's that sense isn't there not wanting kind of death to take up root in your home before it's it needs to be there as well i know my mum was probably quite similar to you though i i remember me and my sister being quite worried in a way about how she kind of approached the whole situation because it was always as if she was just in denial mm. but she just wanted to live as much as she could in the time that they had. Mm. I guess that's another question for you about whether you felt in some ways lucky to be able to anticipate what was going to happen, that you had the chance to talk about things and say the things that you wanted to say. Is that something that that you feel um, shapes the way that you experience your loss as well? Yes, I think it intensifies feelings. It intensifies the connection you have between one another I don't think that there is any regret in my mind over things unsaid uh, which I'm incredibly grateful for Um, it made us appreciate every small little thing in a way that I think when a person isn't faced with that life and death scenario perhaps you, you kind of uh, surrender yourself to the everyday, don't you? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we did. I think when something like this happens, it's going to make or break you, isn't it? Isn't it? And, I, and it? and it bound us very tightly together. I love the description in one of your pieces where you were talking about, you know, making bolognese and singing along to Paul Simon. And he yes. was just like, I'm happy to be home. Yes. Just the happiness in the small moments. Yes. And that was fleeting. I mean, two minutes after that record was put on he had a stroke it was his second stroke and he was back in the hospice he was only back home for a couple of days I play and replay that scene in my mind over and over again Um, and actually that's very difficult the flashbacks those um it's interesting really because part of Pat's condition Um, meant that he had epilepsy and Mm. um, he had many seizures and he used to describe um, some of the seizures that he had uh, were very sensory for him and he used to say sometimes that 
he would know when a seizure was coming on because he would get these fragments of memories that would he would say would almost uh, be be thrown against his his brain in, in what he said was a painful a painful way mm. these painful kind of fragments of memory and I remember that now because when I think back to certain points especially towards the end that idea of memories being painful like physically painful to recall when he described his epilepsy seizures back then I didn't understand how he was describing it I, did, I couldn't connect and mm-hmm. now I do yeah, I completely su- understand such what strong he means echoes in how you've written about the physicality of grief there to me I, mm-hmm. there's a couple of quotes that I kind of wrote down that I just felt really encapsulated some of the things that I've felt the unforgiving onslaught of premenstrual syndrome mood swings fatigue and even body dysmorphia um, the way that it changes your relationship to the body I thought maybe we could talk a bit about mm. that how it physically in, inhabits you but both also changes your literal physical appearance yes. as well and how's a young woman that is well, yes. incredibly disorientating and um, discombobulating and just throws up huge um, questions about your own identity exactly that and I, I don't think I've even really touched the surface in terms of what I want to write about is how grief affects the body but I'm also really keen to explore how grief affects my body a woman's body mm-hmm. uh, a young woman's body um, and how I had disconnected from that body for many many years um, you know it didn't it didn't Im- immediately start in the days after Pat's death. It was a very gradual uh, untethering, I would say. And part of the writing process for me is to engage with that, uh, to confront it, which isn't always easy. But um, I feel that it's important. And that Sunday times magazine piece started from a point where i it started from a changing room you know the piece starts in a changing room and that's exactly where that feature came from um because i thought that i was alone in this experience of you know i would i remember it vividly i would finish work i I was doing um shifts at the pool at the time um I would sometimes cancel plans with friends because I couldn't really face having to talk about anything, not just about mm-hmm. Pat, anything. I didn't want to talk. But I didn't want to go home either because it's, you know, an empty flat and it felt uh, unfamiliar and strange. So I would end up wandering into shops like, you know, Topshop on Oxford Street on a Friday night Help. madness absolute <laughs> madness but in a way it was perfect because I just lost myself in it it was like sensory overload you know mm-hmm. and I just I'd wander around and pick up random dresses and go into the changing room and try them on and you know all my life I've well I've never been sure about myself in many ways but I've always known how to dress you know I, like, I know what my style is and uh, what was interesting to me was that oh, a few months after he passed away, I just, I didn't know what to do with myself. 
I'd open the wardrobe and look at clothes and just I would didn't even know what how to dress myself or or how I wanted to appear to the world because when you can't connect with yourself and you feel unfamiliar in your own skin how on earth can you decide what mm-hmm. clothes to put on it you know mm-hmm. and that was really interesting to me and that's how the piece came about and then I was so surprised when it came out and I had so many women replying to me saying how much they connected with it you know that they also struggled because it seems really insignificant in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about death you know to mm-hmm. start talking about clothes seems almost but it's how you inhabit the world literally it's your outer skin isn't it and when you've been kind of almost unsheathed or kind of um unshelled of your outer skin your yes. emotional skin yeah and as actually the unshelled that term is interesting because Ariel Levy writes about that and um, she's a writer who I quoted in that Sunday Times magazine piece and her experience, although different to mine, uh, her book um, is about a lot of things, it's about loss, it's a multifaceted memoir about loss Um, her book begins at a point where she's lost literally everything, she's lost her partner, um, she lost a baby at five months she lost her home and there's a scene within that memoir where after she loses her baby she goes to a shop to try and buy clothes for the body that has so significantly changed Mm -hmm. and there are things happening in her body that still tell her that she's pregnant and yet she has to buy these clothes that Mm. are telling a different story and that connected with me on such a deep level and I thought oh maybe it's a bit odd that I'm going to quote this in my own experience of grief but then I thought well no because actually this is what we're talking about right is that you know any person's narrative when it comes to loss there is this connecting lifeline between all of them Mm -hmm. this universe universality of of loss and grief yeah, and it seems as if, in a way, you've kind of turned to to many things to armour yourself. You've turned to literature, to reading what other people have written, to writing yourself, to conjuring your own, not armour, but your own kind of um, placement in that world. And then to the clothes, too, to refashion yourself. How do you refashion yourself in the face of loss? Quite literally refashion, but to remake yourself. And then you've got this body that's so physically different as well. Yeah, it it did feel like I was on my period every day. And that, again, I remember I was interviewing a bereavement counsellor for a piece that I was writing about all of this. Um, He he was a man. Um, But I remember telling him that's how I felt and just this really awkward pause on the line, you know, that Mm -hmm. he just didn't get it. (laughs) It's like, you know, I understand, but that, that is how it felt to me. Um, this kind of body not kind of body it was a body dysmorphia mm-hmm. um, my my limbs felt different I, I, I didn't feel like I was in control of my own physicality and when I looked in the mirror it looked fragmented it didn't look like a whole person because I didn't feel like a whole person 
Yeah, people don't talk enough about how grief affects you physically. Like your immune system shuts down. The, yeah. the, the, un, the unableness to eat as well. I remember that being mm. a kind of huge part of my experience, just feeling, I know after my third miscarriage, I wrote this line down. It was just like, I don't want to eat. I contain too much already. It was mm. this idea of I just didn't, I couldn't swallow. I, li- no. I just couldn't. Yeah. Sounds mad, doesn't it? It's like yeah, and yet it's the one thing that everyone mentions, you mm. know. And it's, oh, so it becomes that? yes, because I think people, uh, when things like this happen, it's the one thing you know. We talk about control, but that's the one thing. People who love you, that's the one control that they have to say. This is what I can do to help. You know that they bring food. You know, and a lot mm. of my friends and and family brought Tupperware of food over and you know it was it was really lovely even in that kind of in the depths of grief I could appreciate there and feel the warmth of their love it's just like I couldn't I couldn't swallow it you know? yeah lit- <laughs> I literally couldn't literally, swallow it yeah. you definitely need to write more about that and tell me why that is that you literally can't swallow no I mean, apparently somebody was telling me um who was a vocal coach that um a lot of your kind of emotional emotional chakras or something around your throat so when you are grieving or when you Mm -hmm. have a loss often people will lose their voices if they're singers um but um that that must have some connection also to the not being able to swallow this isn't functioning as it as Mm. it should um one of the first physical responses i had was to throw up um and that happened sporadically at points that surprised me and I think it was my body's kind of very visceral way of just sort of <laughs> pushing back. Because if I think about how I, my behaviour around that time, it was very... Uh, there's this kind of theory, another theory. I mean, I'm not sure about all these grief theories because everyone's different. But um, it's called the dual process model. And it's all about how um, when people grieve they tend to oscillate between these two points, which is to confront the grief, to feel it, which would, I guess, be me throwing up in the mm-hmm. toilet bowl. And then the other is to hang on to everyday life because actually your brain can't stay in that confrontational grief mode mm. 24 hours a day in those early weeks Yeah, so it's, it's a way of surviving, is to inhabit. Yeah, and life. I do think that's how I was, you know. I did... I did go down the pub with friends and um, I did have conversations where I laughed. I did make jokes. Uh, My friend sent me a photograph recently that I remembered to be weeks after Pat died. I went to Richmond by the river with some friends and my dad um, and we had some food by the water. It was three days after Pat died and I totally, my sense of time, and that's the other thing, mm. your sense of time vanishes. It's like you're in this kind of void where there is no time. It's past, present and future. It, it mixes in this strange, discombobulating way. Um, and I was really shocked to see that photo because anyone looking at it, it just, yeah, it just looks like we're out having a nice Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about this. Um, there's a an episode where I, I've spoken about baby loss, and um, my kind of strange moment was um, the night before I was due to go in to have surgery after I'd had my third miscarriage. 
um, which had gone horribly wrong and was just not doing what it should do. Mm. The night before, um, I went to the Prog Awards mm. and I presented an award. So I was doled up to the nines yeah. in about five pairs of Spanx and all these like you know sanitary towels and nappies essentially to mm. stop the hemorrhaging. And how so many people were so horrified mm. that I could do that, knowing what had happened. It's like how how can you just because what else are you going to do? You have a choice. Or in my mind, it was like, I'm going to feel worse if I just lie at home and howl. There was a lot of howling, actually. We were talking about mm-hmm. not being able to sweat. Did you have that kind of primal howl? These strange sounds emanate from your throat that you yes. never thought were possible. Yeah. And I was speaking to a lot of other women who've experienced this. It's like these horrible, guttural, just yeah. not even wailing. It's not crying. It's something mm-hmm. otherworldly. I mm. and and also the need to get down on the ground and want to be well. On, yes, in yes. the earth. I have. I, that's yeah. another thing that I've always wanted to ask somebody else. Is it? Well, like that too. Well, yes, and it features quite heavily in in my writing. And if I was to give any snapshot of grief, my mental picture is always me on my hands and knees on the bathroom floor. Mm. So grief to me is a bathroom floor. It's my bathroom floor. Mm. Uh, that's the best way that I can describe it. But yes, there is something about getting down on the ground. I was reading some literature about... Well, I'm trying to do some research on, on time because I think the way that time and grief interact is, is very interesting. But this the idea that time actually moves slower on the ground. Mm-hmm and faster above and I think there's something about um, pulling yourself down towards gravity that uh, is a key component in this experience of grief is I would also often read on the ground Mm -hmm. Um, and I couldn't even tell you why it's it's a very primal yeah, it's the thing. thing. It is that primalness that you go back to some kind of, not even sure, back to some state. You just go into this weird primal state. And I wonder if that is a gendered experience of, of loss and grief. I'd be interested to talk mm. to more men about mm. that. I don't think so far I've spoken to any um, male guest on, on this series that has spoken about that mm. kind of and maybe as women we have a different relationship to because we have a different relationship to our bodies mm. that perhaps we do experience grief in more physical way than men do I, I don't know yes and I think you know at the beginning of this podcast I said that his illness was very protracted over six years and his deterioration was very fast but actually I can say that now, but those six weeks did not feel fast. Mm-hmm. Um, they were painful, drawn-out, traumatic days of seeing somebody deteriorate in a um, deeply upsetting way. I think that because of that, there was this numbness that happened over those weeks where I, in a way, I detached because I had a job to do, because I was a carer, and I think this is the other aspect to a terminal illness, is when you suddenly find yourself in the role of carer, and no one kind of trains you how to do that. It's something that kind of instinctively takes over. 
and you know each day I had this routine you know I would go to the supermarket and I would um, buy some food for Pat um, I would usually have some laundry in a bag I would get on the bus I would get to the hospice that there would be friends certain friends that had been booked in that day to mm-hmm. see him and I would sort of take them in and, and bring them out um, and then I'd pick up dirty laundry and then I would go home at the end of the day and I'd, I'd do that laundry and I might have a couple of hours in the evening where and this is interesting I actually bought a record player I bought a second record player when Pat went into the hospice we have one in the kitchen my dad's record player in the kitchen uh, and I bought a second record player because when I came home in the evenings it was really important that I at least had one hour and I would like we were saying sort of not you know lying down on the floor I would lie down on the sofa and I would put a record on and that would be my 30 to 60 minutes of time where I could just feel the music Mm. because I'd had a whole day feeling well I think I was traumatised and when you're traumatised you feel actually strangely numb because there's nothing actually that you can do other than other than those small jobs yeah this resonates what more can you do yeah just the numbness of it and the exhaustion of caring for someone too it's so exhausting isn't it yeah and not wanting to admit that because in some way that feels like a failure Um, but also there's no space for that there's no space for you uh, and there's no certainly no space for those feelings because there's something far more uh, powerful happening that's so much further out of your control and that is that process and it is a process you see it as a process happening to this person mm-hmm. and all you can do is help that person as much as you can but you are a witness to it yeah I I remember a moment of you know washing my dad while he was in bed and just Mm -hmm. thinking like almost like observing myself do it like having outer body experience and I think that's similar to what you were talking about the trauma I don't talk about that enough the trauma of Mm. anticipatory grief Mm. how you go into this shell-shocked kind of place because it's so it's just deeply traumatic isn't it and just thinking this is not this shouldn't be happening and i i'm not equipped to deal with this but i have to do it and i mean it's interesting you were saying about listening to records because i found that i couldn't really listen to music to this day i can't listen to cat power anymore because that was what was in the car as we were rushing towards the john radcliffe when he was having his emergency surgery Mm. i cannot listen to her i can't i will never be able to listen to her again and i didn't want to ruin any more albums I loved I didn't yeah. want to ruin any more artists sure Although I, I guess that. it's, that's such a personal um for me music was so important to me and how I experienced the world that I just didn't want to taint anything else well yeah and you know music's how Pat and I met and uh, it's is was such an integral part of our relationship it was hugely comforting to me when he was away from home I think that's why Mm. I bought the record player because suddenly he was somewhere else and I found that very difficult Uh, so it's like having a friend it's like bringing a friend into the into the house Uh, when he died that uh, there were uh, was about a month where I couldn't listen to any music at all 
at that point, I think I had to just completely disengage. And then I went, then I went into the, into the books. Yeah, I think you're so flayed at that point, aren't you? That in a way, music is, it's like it's like a can opener, isn't it? It's like it's going to open the can of worms. You're not quite ready. It kind of percolates. It's like all yeah. your emotions suddenly are very much, you know, on the surface and ready to, yeah, ready any, to devour you. I remember in the months after my dad died, just any song could could set me off. I remember it being like, oh, is it the windmills of my mind of all things coming on in the car with my mum and just completely losing it yeah. over that of all. Yeah. songs <laughs> I had no relationship to that yeah. song before that moment but it yeah. it felt so um, you hear all these different meanings in songs that were never there before yeah and I was um, going through some of Pat's belongings in the weeks after he died and I found a CD that he'd put together for me uh, when we first started dating I lamented that nobody sent anyone mixtapes anymore and um, probably made a bit of a song and dance about it and about a week later he very uh, very sweetly very quietly just sort of pushed this cd towards me and he'd made me this lovely um, mix cd which i'd totally forgotten i'd forgotten it had even happened and i found it in a one of the cardboard boxes and you know that was again was incredibly comforting because it's like finding a letter from him from somewhere else you know these little kind of reassuring things mm-hmm. that you uncover I think at the time that you need them continuing bond I think one of my other guests called it oh really yeah it's a term that's often used um, with baby loss especially with stillbirth where it's like how do you negotiate um, loving someone that isn't here anymore and uh, I know one of the things the terms that's used is continuing bond Mm. the idea especially when you have a complex um, grief that's out of time if you see what I mean as Mm. in a premature um, grief um, yeah these continuing bonds that we need in order to make sense of it all mm. that, that, that sounds like the mix CD to me that is the mix CD it was a good mix CD as well you did alright <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a few questions that I ask all of my guests go um, for it some of them are, are probably quite large questions that uh, may take as many hours to have an answer <laughs> to but I will I ask will try and be succinct I will try my best there. What would you say has been the lasting impacts of your loss? It's still ongoing, so that's that's kind of a tricky one for me to answer. I would say that I have discovered parts of myself I didn't know was there. And that's been quite a revelatory experience for me. And there is something very profound about that. And it's something that I feel like not everyone has uh, because it's, it's, it's mine, you know? And like I was saying about this whole physical feeling out of my body disconnection, um, actually when you start to reconnect with your body after such uh, many years of... of such fracture that's a really interesting thing um, because I feel like in the regrowth something new is happening and um, I don't think it's a betrayal of what has been lost 
to say that Mm -hmm. and even saying this now you know there's a little voice in my head going well people are going to think you're weird saying that that there there can be this kind of positive growth after such bereavement but for me the new shoots are stronger and that's important and um, I know myself better Uh, I feel like I know the world better I carry Pat with me and I feel like not that I'm living life for both of us because I think actually that's too much pressure for one person to carry but I do feel like this man enriched me in more ways I could possibly express and I'm a writer and to lose such a person is unimaginable and has been one of the most the most uh, traumatic, horrific experiences of my life but now uh, coming into the second year of loss um, I'm feeling like there are new pathways that I want to explore in different ways and I wouldn't feel that way if it wasn't for him Mm. and I think there's something quite beautiful about that it brings me neatly on to my next question that I ask everybody as well Um, what do you think of the Nietzschean adage that what doesn't kill us makes us stronger is it a dangerous myth or is it a helpful narrative for those going through loss I think it depends on what day (laughs) (laughs) to be honest with you (laughs) yeah I mean, I think with any trauma, uh, any difficulty that a person goes through, um, undoubtedly that's going to add new complexities to that person and they're going to see things differently. I think it's also okay to say, I'm not okay and I'm not Mm. doing okay and I'm struggling. And I think there is this pressure to put on that brave front to the world to say that, like we were saying, you know, my pain makes me real and there's this romanticism and it's all, you know, back into that, my childhood pre-Raphaelite obsession and it is a romanticism, it's not real life. Um, But I do think that at the point of loss, you are very close to a transformation. And I think that's the light that I choose to focus on. We've talked an awful lot about loss. So with my last question, I'd like to ask you, what is something that you've found in your life? Oh, do you know, I found love and I found love in my friends. And when I think about the last year, there are there's like this little circle of oh these spirited people who I just feel so thankful are in my life and they're the ones who day upon day have encouraged me and and at times actually physically picked me off that bathroom floor um but they're my chosen family and um, I feel incredibly lucky to have them in, in my life.
So I would say my friends. And also I would say I found... I found my words, you know. I found a way to express myself that feels like it gives me strength and gives me an understanding of a very complex experience. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to me today. I'm really looking forward to what you write next about this um, important and fascinating subject. I think um, you have a very important book in you that I, I for one, will certainly be wanting to read. (laughs) TBC. TBC. Thank you for having me. Since recording our conversation last year, Kat has announced the publication of her first book, The Elements, a memoir of grief, loss and transformation. It will be published by Icon Books in September 2021. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends. I've been Catherine Ann Davies. You've been listening to The Art of Losing. Thank you for joining us.